Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Digital Grocer, Mercatus's very own, I want to call it podcast, video series. It doesn't really matter at this point. We've been doing so many episodes. Season four, episode eight. And as always, joining me from the safety of his home office is Mark Ferris, our VP of Marketing. Mark, welcome to the show. Good to be back. Good to be back. It's not it, a bunker anymore. It's why not is a bunker? Why isn't I? Why is it not a bunker anymore? It's elevated to home office. Oh, I, I, uh, I was just, it's 2021. I just got to change it up at this point. That's right. It's, uh, it's comfortable as ever. I got, I got one heater going. If I turn the other one on, it blows the circuit. Okay. Well, that's, well, let's be careful in blowing any circuits in your home. You know, I, uh, I'm surprised you got rid of the Christmas tree and the fireplace. Yes, I got, uh. What is it? I got I got my Yoda, my little Yoda here. Yes, and is that a, a Monet sunset in the back, or what is that? What's going on? Yeah, that's just uh, winterscape. Oh, winterscape! Winterscape with a Great. light Great. that's Great. causing some awesome some glare, unfortunately. Yeah, no worries. Hey, listen, there's a lot going out in the industry. Uh, you and I, you and I have been keeping tabs on the trades. Uh, I think the big news that kind of came out of Walmart is Mark Lore is gone. Yeah. Any, yep. Any, not, any sense? Is he gone? It is was it amicable? Do we know? Well, I, th- I think a lot of people were saying, "Think you know, it's about time." I mean, right. they, everyone suspected that this would happen. And for those who don't know, Mark Lore came over in the jet acquisition, right? And basically uh, re-engineered Walmart's e-commerce experience. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, so he's. I think he's on. I think he's on staff or available till September. Interesting. Okay, so up runway, right? Do we know any sense of where he's going? I mean, I, I, you know, when I got the news, I was, you know, thinking to myself, he would make an interesting addition over on the Instacart team. Yeah, yeah. And so we, d- yeah, we don't I, know I think, yet. No, no. I think media speculation. One, yes, he, uh, he would be a pretty strong fit at Instacart. Um, other, I think the printed speculation is his food truck business, which mm-hmm. I think his brother is running or, uh, this new venture that something about the digital city. So it's, um, and that, but that was the first time I read about that. Uh, yeah. it was mentioned in a, in a recode article. Yeah. And we, we would know something about digital city. I mean, the, the partnership mm-hmm. that the city of Toronto had with Google in terms of, kind of you know developing out um what is it called is it the dawn lands at the bottom of the dawn river at the bottom of the the uh the highway uh in toronto i mean which which is prime for redevelopment in its beautiful beautiful yeah. space but the google backed yeah. out and and there were some privacy concerns um the other big change is mm-hmm. it seems there be there's been a cfo change over at instacart um, so they've brought in a veteran from Goldman Sachs, been with Goldman for yeah. 20, 23, 24 years. I mean, great indication likely that they're going to go IPO. Uh, their f- former CFO, Sagar, no idea where he's going. Was it an amicable split? Uh, Mark, any? are you hearing anything on the street from uh, streets from your contacts? No, um, I th- it's basically the same as you. It's the ever... Uh, 
ever closing uh, Instacart IPO. It's right. uh, so this is just another step along the way, I think. Yeah, I would say. So listen, guys, we love to banter and share with you guys what's happening in in the space and in the news and and but we have an action pack show uh, for you uh, for you today. Uh, we're, Mark and I are bringing on board one of our favorite guests. Uh, and, uh, his name is, uh, David Bishop. David works for brick meets click. We've done tons of webinars, uh, with them. We've done an incredible amount of research and research gets, you know, quite frankly, a lot of traction in this space. Uh, and, and, and really insightful in terms of when you put this in the hands of grocers that are trying to figure out how to deliver, profitable experiences when it comes to click and collect, click and deliver, and so on. And I've just, I enjoy getting the reports. I enjoy reading them. I love the back and forth that we that we have uh, with, with David. It just kind of crystallizes that at the end of the day, if you're going to run a business in the modern era, and, and especially around e-commerce, especially in grocery, you want to have that tangible asset of insights to help you drive your strategic vision forward. And, and he has just recently released or about to release this report. We felt it just kind of made sense to bring him on board uh, to chat with us. And in this is a man who really needs no introduction. Uh, David, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you very much. Appreciate welcome. it. Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> I had to do that. So uh, no, that there, there, for the people out there, there, there are about a hundred people outside. This is like the Today Show. Uh, <laughs> some people hang. Oh, keep your shirts on, ladies. So, well, let's get going here. It's it's crazy. I got I, you know. I got. I got to tell you, you know, you know. Originally, we played hard to get with David. David reached out like three years ago, and uh, it was only I think in the last year that we've actually been able to develop, you know, a pretty complementary relationship between uh you know what mercatus does and what uh, bricks meets click does and uh, i think it's, it's turned out really well yeah i i think you guys have always had some very thought-provoking um insights i think uh, having a point of view is important in this space uh, we're all learning it and so the more we can share with one another the smarter we all collectively get yeah absolutely 100%. yeah and, and so before we kind of jump into these really three key slides uh, that that we've kind of decided that really made sense to share with the audience, give us the layup on the research, the process, uh, and so on, because I know that's really juicy tidbit information that the audience really likes. Yeah, you know, we actually started with this research all the way back in 2011, believe it or not. We started primarily working with retailers to understand their specific markets. And then there was a growing realization, hey, you know, there's interest for more of a national macro view. So we adapted our methodologies that we use with retailers specifically starting in 2015 to start looking at the national. It informed a lot of the things we do, like our three A's growth framework, our seamless shopping scorecard, things of that sort. But more recently, we had been on a cadence of doing this once a year up until COVID simply because we were on a slow, steady incline. Um, so we normally would have done it in August. All of a sudden, March came around and we dusted off what we did, updated it a little bit and turned down a monthly cadence. And, um, you know, you guys had participated and helped us add some additional insights to that. We went to a quarterly in August, sensing 
the markets were setting, settling down. And we've done that through the fourth quarter of this year. And now we're getting a lot of interest from retailers to go back to monthly. Um, frankly, because, you know, we're in the lean of the, uh, the blind where the one-eyed monster is king or, or like that uh, famous uh, fable, if that's the right term, seven blind men feeling the elephant all from different parts trying to describe what mm -hmm. it looks like. So, you know, we take a very customer-centric view. We start with the household and take a 360 view in terms of where, when, and how they shop online for groceries. So that's ship to home delivery and pickup. And then we really focus on what we consider the most relevant segment of that, the monthly active users, because after all, people are going to the grocery store at least once a week. So to have a, a hurdle of you know shopping online once a month, it's not a really high standard, but it is a relevant one, especially in an emerging area. And then we really dwell into the most recent experience to get a lot more insights into you know, how are those experiences um, being had from the customer standpoint. And what does that mean going forward? Because we know the customer satisfaction is a leading indicator for repeat purses. Mm -hmm. And it also tells us a lot of other things around the fulfillment methods and areas of opportunity that the, the retailers can really explore to uh, continue to grow the business in a more sustainable way. So before we jump into the research, I wanna ask you a question. I mean, I remember years ago, actually not even a year, years ago, I would say same time last year, if you talk to a retailer and you say, you know, we speculate that the market will be this size by this date. Our data is teaching us this. You should be mindful of that. I would, and maybe because I don't have a research pedigree, would be met with a lot of skepticism from, from retailers. But you're a researcher. You're an expert at this. And when you find yourself, you know, call it we're in the... I don't know, I guess the first year of the pandemic, are you finding that your retailers that you're interacting with now are saying, yeah, I, I, I absolutely believe these numbers now? Yeah, I think the first thing, if we look at kind of the laws of retail, first and foremost, it's always defend the base. But if you listen to what I said, defend the base, it's reactionary, right? Mm -hmm. um, it isn't until you've defended the basis and you that you focus on profit. And then beyond that, focus on differentiation. In a business where you're facing increasing threats, differentiation kind of gets put on pause. Profits also gets paused, and we try to you know, lower prices as a way to maintain that. When we look at e-commerce, obviously, um, if people had their druthers go back to 2016, 2017, you know, folks would be looking at this saying, well, it's not a large portion of our business. We're not really inclined to make the move. But then we have the announced acquisition of Whole Foods in 2017. And that's a, a defensive reaction to what was happening, which was this perceived threat that uh, my business is under attack. Therefore, I have to respond. So reactionary. And, you know, retailers um, very quickly made choices in terms of how they were going to go online. But at that point, um, that was an executional response. It wasn't a strategic one. And we're still seeing that play out today. Um, what we're seeing is that... Um, if we look at performance today, most of the issues that we see, while obviously they're operational in nature, they're actually derived mainly by the absence of a sound strategy. So when the COVID happened, you know, we had actually had done some strategic planning just prior. We wrapped up at the end of February. We would have unfortunately had the final meeting in March, but we accelerated it, fortunately. And at that time, we were doing a five-year plan. And the five-year plan was, you know, based on no black swan event, um, and still there was a degree of healthy skepticism and doubt. Obviously, as a retailer looks at this, if they say, 
we don't necessarily want to motivate our in-store shopper to shop online. If it's too easy, then they will do that. And we, you know, from a contribution margin standpoint, we'll have lower margins. So we want to be very mindful of that. So profit over sales has always been the orientation of a brick and mortar retailer. And that makes a lot of sense. The challenge is, you know, the motives of the, the new entrants um, aren't, aren't driven by the same business model. You know, they're driven by possibly, uh, you know, digital footprint that rewards them with uh, ad dollars mm -hmm. and they don't have the same operating model and they put sales over profit. And so that really puts the traditional brick and mortar in a pickle. Um, and then what do you do about that? Obviously, COVID really focused on, oh, my gosh, we have this surge in demand. Now we have to meet it. Again, an operational challenge that's been met uh, for the most part. But what we're still seeing today, and in fact, we're engaged with retailers as we speak on different retailers on their five-year strategic plan. And now the question is, okay, what does the future look like, right? Do we get back to that slow and steady incline from an albeit larger base? Or does it continue to have these massive swings where we have to deal with surge capacity? We don't know. So, you know, you have to have those contingencies or scenarios planned out. But ultimately, there's some even bigger decisions now because now people are looking at large CapEx investments in things like microfilament. And the real question is, do we believe the forecast going forward? You know, how much confidence do we have in that? And that comes only from really interrogating insights. And by interrogating insights, you really have to start by asking the right questions and then understanding what those insights mean. And we often find that people will be looking for those in somewhat of a haphazard fashion um, to support a specific issue without looking at the bigger picture. So, you know, again, we wrestle with constantly reframing the discussion around, is it an operational issue or is it a strategic issue? I think right now, many of the retailers have probably more of a strategic issue in front of them than an operational one. And that's important because as we start to get into 2021, we have one more quarter of easy comps and then we have to figure out what do we do from there. And so if they're not already looking at ways to build the basket, retain those customers that they've engaged and make more money on a contribution margin basis for the online shopper, they're already going to be behind the game because other retailers take Target, the gold standard out there today, really has been clicking and has been doing that probably for about two and a half years. It's just becoming clear to people that their strategy made a lot of sense. And you can see even now Walmart is actually imitating Target's store's fulfillment strategy, really indicating or confirming the soundness of that move because it improves the number one physical asset that every retailer has, the physical store, and leverages the main strategic asset that we said in 2017 that every physical retailer has, and that's proximity to the customer. Got it. Okay. That's amazing. I want, let's just, let's just dive in. Let me put up the let's go for it. first slide. Fire. Tell us Ooh, what you that's see. That's a lot of stuff. <laughs> well, uh, well, I see a big chart here. So, you know, we got this donut hole chart over there in the middle. It says 89.1 million. I want to just kind of put this in context. That is 89.1 million households within the last year have gone online to buy some groceries. Now, this number here in particular is really representative of households that might have gone online, let's say to Amazon's marketplace, ordered something, their favorite cookies, for instance, 
They got them put in a box, shipped via UPS or FedEx or even Amazon and arrives at their doorstep. It includes your home delivery, you know, most notably people like Peapot and Fresh Direct, but also from other retailers and your store pickup. And when you look at that 89.1 million, that's about just under, I should say, just under uh, 70% of the U.S. households. So why I say that? Well, if you're wondering what's going to motivate someone to go online, we just had a major event. It's called COVID-19. And even so, 30% of the U.S. households did not go online. Now, there are reasons for that. About 10% don't use the internet, as hard as that is to believe. But there's still another 20% that you would say, why didn't they? And that's because they prefer to shop in the physical world. And that's fine. Now, today, the blue, that's 60.1, you know, that represents around 46% of all the U.S. households. Uh, and if we were to only focus on uh, those who use delivery and pickup, looking at November's numbers, of the 60.1, it would be just under 39 million. Now, that's 30% of the U.S. households that went online during the past month, in this case, November, and placed an order and received it via home delivery or store pickup. That 30%, put it in context versus August of last year, which we're using as our pre-COVID kind of indicator, uh, we only had 16 million households or just over 12%. So we went from 12% of households actively using uh, delivery and pickup during the prior month to 30%. So just an extraordinary uh, acceleration in adoption or what, what I also say trial. And we have... COVID-19 to thank largely for that. But I think the other part of it, and the reason why you have the two uh, parts, the smaller sections highlighted, is that you have you know, 18.2 million uh, households uh, that roughly equals 14% and 10 or almost 11 million, which is 8% of all U.S. households that have used, uh, have gone online to buy groceries within the last year, but just not in the last month. So the gray bar we would consider lapsed or potentially infrequent. And the red most likely we would say is lost because this is someone who bought maybe three or more months ago. And the reason that's important is again, you know, if COVID didn't bring you online, what will? Well, what we know from our November research, and we didn't share this publicly, is that um, you know, a financial incentive may attract 35% of those people who haven't bought online uh, during the past 30 days. A word of mouth referral may be about 25%. But the number one reason that would cause someone who doesn't shop online to shop online is a medical issue, right? I broke my leg. I hurt my back. Uh, I got COVID. I can't go to the store. Over 50% of the customers say that's the reason. So absent further retail restrictions or worse stay-at-home orders, you know, we can see that we have a pretty good ceiling relative to what's the customer pool that we're now fishing in relative to retailers. And so retailers need to now take heed and one, obviously, build engagement with that uh, blue section, the 60 million, and ensure that they're really delivering against their expectations and, and increasing the customer lifetime value they have and helping them become brand ambassadors to, you know, spread the word that uh, we're the place to shop at. Um, short of that, then if we're looking at, okay, how do I acquire new customers? We need to keep in mind, it's going to be harder to steal away customers from 
other retailers. And the simple reason is the other retailers are uh, going through a very similar process where their customers are maturing. You know, we now have the bulk of customers who are actively shopping online with grocers past their fourth order. And at that point, their likelihood to repeat is near certainty. It's, it's 95%. Um, the number of people who are considered first-time orders, and we define first-time as it's the first time you've gone and shopped with a particular service online within the last three months, uh, is, is going down. And now it's uh, close to 15%. It used to be around 25% a year ago. And that's really key for driving top-line growth because a lot of the growth accrues from uh, onboarding that first-time customer and bringing them you know, to the more established fourth or more order. So retailers need to really look at how they're allocating their marketing dollars and how they're trying to target and acquire either a lapsed customer, which is theirs, or a lost customer maybe from someone else who said, yeah, I just wasn't happy with the experience. I had to wait 10 minutes for that. And that, you know, that as opposed to just simply spending, you know, dollars trying to chase people on the web. So, you know, it, it, it's an orientation where there's this, this kind of subtle shift from a thematic standpoint from, you know, growing via marketing, uh, you know, on the internet to really focusing on merchandising uh, with your, you know, your existing customer. And, you know, that comes through in terms of, you know, how, how effective search is to your recommendation engines to your, you know, your various suggestive and upselling uh, tools, as well as you know, your CRM, CRM uh, applications in terms of making sure that you're engaging those, especially those who you would define as lapsed. And again, we would define a lapsed customer as a person who hasn't placed an order with you within the last month. Um, we would probably consider them lost once it got past three months because you know, unless we're in a very unique situation, that's just not a good sign. Now, I'm kind of curious here at this point, if I was to talk to a retailer or if you're talking to a retailer, what are you what are you telling them or the key things that you're seeing in terms of what they need to recognize in today's online consumer? Yeah, the, the expectations um, have continued to change. You know, one thing um, I try to say to, to the retailers is, the expectations that customers have at your stores are being influenced by experiences at others. And, you know, I've shared with you before that, you know, the magical moment of my target drive up, mm -hmm. you know, target internally has that goal of delivering a drive up order in two minutes or less. And they do a very consistent job with that. So uh, I take that to my grocery store and say, okay, if target can do it, let's see how my grocery store does. Well, unfortunately, a lot of grocery stores, haven't invested the same way and don't have the soundness of strategy that Target does. As a consequence, I have a very different experience and I'm not happy by it. And, I, and I'm not happy because I wonder, well, if Target could do it, why couldn't you? And so, you know, it's that realization that um, we need to recognize the customer's expectations continue to change. They're becoming more um, familiar uh, with how to use the technology. They're becoming more experienced um, and they have a deeper uh, well of experience cross channel. And, you know, if people say, well, that's Target, it's not a grocery store. Well, we have seen, as you know, that we're now north of 20% uh, crossover shop between a person who shops online during the last month at a grocery store and also doing the same at a mass merchant like a Walmart or Target. So it's very much relevant to say expectations at Target or Walmart are going to influence the expectations um, you know, at a grocery store, I should say the experience at a Target right. or Walmart will shape your, your expectations at a grocery store. 
great. So let's let's just dive into the next slide. Let me bring it up. Yeah, yeah. You know, so we're looking at here uh, kind of a, a, a horizontal stack chart, looking at the distribution of customer experience scores across the three um, ways online orders are received. We don't say fulfillment. Fulfillment is a broader uh, term, uh, but in terms of receive, ship to home delivery and pickup. Obviously, we're not going to dwell on the ship to home. You know, that's um, something that most households have done. Again, you buy something, it gets thrown in a cardboard box, taped up and sent to you. And, you know, that's a pretty straightforward uh, model. And you can see the average uh, score on the far right, just about 51. But again, the averages are just that. They're just averages. So we break it into this stack chart looking at the distributions. And many of the retailers we uh, work with, as you know, Savane, is uh, they like to have a perfect order score. So that perfect order score is, you know, based on whatever metrics that they are including in that. We have six, and we'll touch on it in a minute. But one, when we look at delivery, first of all, delivery scores exceptionally well against ship to home, and that's really noteworthy because, you know, home delivery is a very challenging and complex order. You know, it's not just throwing it in a cardboard box. You know, we have eggs, we have ice cream, you know, we have tomatoes and avocados, we have alcohol, and we have a whole range of items on average between 30 and 40 in the basket. So there's a lot of issues with perishability, time sensitive and pressure sensitive products that we have to handle. And the point is from a perfect order score, delivery is scoring exceptionally well relative to ship to home. Now, when you look at pickup, Obviously, it's lagging considerably on the perfect order. Now, if we expand the, the, the definition of uh, perfect to near perfect, we would include the 90% above. And we can see that pickup does close the gap considerably. But still, the question is, why is that? So this is interrogating the insights because that's where the actionable value really comes. And we say that because pickup really, from a, a strategic and economic perspective, is where physical brick and mortars win. And we've been saying that since 2016. So to have an indicator like this, it is almost as if we have a flashing red light saying, we need to look into that, which is exactly what we did. And I think that's what we'll have on the next slide. So again, putting aside a ship to home, we're now looking at what we consider that near perfect order. So the customer across six friction points, you can see the fr six friction points on the, on the chart from, I was able to order everything that I wanted to the very far right. I received all the items I ordered in good condition. And, you know, in this case, again, this is based on a national uh, survey of households across channels. So these numbers reflect not just grocery, but grocery in mass. And so there are some, you know, issues with the sampling that uh, make the numbers sometimes harder to interpret, which for instance, got all the items you ordered, you know, we see pickup is really trailing here. And that's kind of uh, not the message I want to focus on. But this is a function of, you know, the realities we're at, we may have had some orders that unfortunately in the pickup spot, just did not get uh, a substitution made. So we had more item voids. Uh, we could have had poor performance in that. And I say that's more of a function of the surveying because when you look at the one to the left of it, alerted of out of stocks, very similar. And if we were doing this for a specific retailer, we would expect uh, 
the alert out stocks and got all the items you ordered to, to trend in a very similar uh, direction and magnitude because they're generally going to be fulfilled uh, from the same locations, at least today. So moving that aside, the two that I want to focus on as it relates to explaining why pickups getting the lower score and more importantly, what does that mean to a retailer and what should they do about it? Um, first is I was able to select the preferred time slot here. The customer satisfaction, again, essentially uh, 90% above, we have a 10 point lag in the percentage of customers using pickup indicating that they were uh, very to extremely satisfied with, with that component of, the shopping experience. Now you have to say, why is that? Well, we know there's been a surge in demand. Most of the times people say, well, it just means the pickup slots filled up faster. And that's true, but here's the rub. The rub is, and I did this just yesterday for a client. I went on at 8.30 and even though their lead time that they promote is three hours or four hours, let's say, I couldn't get a pickup order until five o'clock at night. So 8.30 in the morning, five o'clock at night. So the reality is that lead time, at least that they promote, is meaningless and, in fact, almost incendiary because, you know, you basically told me I could get something quicker than I really can. So clearly capacity issue there. But at the same time, if you were to toggle over to delivery at 830 in the morning, all of a sudden you find, oh, I can now get the order within two hours. So if I'm inclined to just you know, get it faster and I don't have a strong preference for delivery or pickup, well, then I'm going to switch over to delivery. The problem with that for the retailer is that's a higher cost to serve, whether it's first party or third party. So you've just compressed your own margins because you don't have the capacity. So, you know, shame on you retailers. And, you know, at the same time, the issue is, you know, why does that happen? Well, most of the delivery today is being handled by third party, either a third party logistic provider like an Uber or a DoorDash or by a full service provider like a Ship or an Instacart. And with that model, they're able to have much, uh, you know, more capacity in the system to flex up and down to meet that demand. On the pickup side, that's almost entirely on the retailer and a function that they haven't invested in building the capacity. And what do they need to do to build the capacity? First and foremost, they need to add the ability to pick more orders more quickly in the store. Now, what some have simply done is added bodies, thrown bodies at the problem. The issue with that simply is that's just a, a, a Band-Aid uh, to the problem. The problem is the, the pick productivities. And so enhanced stocking or pick and pack solutions like shopper kit uh, are one of the very first things we would recommend that a retailer evaluate because you, you could see a reduction of up to 30% by moving from a manual single pick to a batch zone pick. So that's the first part. The second is receive the order in a timely manner. And this is really fascinating. A year ago or more, it would be the other way around. Delivery would have had the lower score. And that's because the perceived uh, wait time is really related to the time window. So most deliveries are one hour or two hour time windows. And the customer felt compelled to have to stay around the home to receive the order. Because after all, they were mostly attended orders. Well, now partially because of the COVID-19, we've shifted from attended to unattended or contactless as they said. But more importantly, the communication tools that the delivery providers are using 
are proactively sharing information and updates or alerts with the customer. So, you know, my wife ordered the other day and she got the alert that the shopper was just leaving the store, which meant they'll be there in the next five minutes, just based on where the store is by our house. So, you know, she's not going to jump in the shower because she wants to be there. But at the same, same time, it's an unattended delivery. So she doesn't have to be present to receive the order. And, you know, just like what Amazon has done with their, their parcel drops, you know, there's a notification once it's been delivered. So those proactive communications are present. On the pickup side, again, the responsibility of the retailer, there's very little, if any, proactive communication from the retailer to the customer. It's all reactive. And that is triggered by the customer. And most of it is pretty friction filled. I pull up, I now have to pull out my phone, worst call a number or text or open the app and hit I'm here. And those all require additional steps, which are friction points. It's not easy, nor is it quick. So the solution obviously is investing in technology that utilizes various geolocation uh, tools, uh, geofence and beacons, and embedding that within the mobile app as a way to automate the notification system, take the burden off the customer and proactively communicate in advance of, of arrival. That's what Target does. I mean, Target has a geofence that's about 100, 150 yards away from the pickup point. And once you trip it, they got about a 30 second jump on you. So in their internal two minute time, they may be factoring that in. I don't know for a fact, but from the customer standpoint, I'm not consider that wait time until I pull in and put my car in park. Um, and that's why in the video I shared with you before, you know, it was absolutely amazing to see the person come out 15 seconds after I pulled up. And that's because in reality, they were already working on the order, retrieving it, assembling it, getting it ready 30 seconds before I pulled up. So, you know, as we look at that, retailers really need to now invest in these areas. Um, and that's part of the strategy, you know, something with the geolocation services, you know, retailers still, believe it or not, look at it as a cost uh, of doing business, but that's not a justification for why I do it. It's almost a justification for why I don't do it, which is it's just adding cost. Uh, you know, if I reframe it another way, it's, you know, this is a, a retention tool. Uh, this is a way to maintain the satisfaction, especially if you realize that in some malls, you know, someone's stopping at the Target doing their drive up and then driving right down to your store and having a terrible long experience that's five, six, seven minutes long. And if that happens, people aren't going to be as uh, uh, forgiving going forward because it's just simply a reflection of where you're placing your value. And that's not valuing the customer's time and the customer won't be appreciated. And then the worst maybe change to another retailer who does do a better job delivering in a more appropriate time frame. So that's kind of the, the I guess, the 411, if you will, of, of those slides, Sylvain. That's great. So question for you. This is where I need you to pull out your crystal ball. I got it right here, my <laughs> little orange. I got this from the orange uh, Walmart pickup point in Lincolnshire, I think it's it was. Perfect, perfect. Lincolnwood, Lincolnwood. Lincolnwood. Yeah. And, and yeah. did you get it in under two minutes? Um, I can't recall. I had a few uh, <laughs> senior citizens with me who were complicating my efforts. Oh, that's okay. That's okay. That happens, right? So yeah. tell me issues, actions that we're, we're going to an you anticipate happening this calendar year. Well, I think from a, from a theme standpoint, strategic theme is really uh, owning the customer connections. 
So, you know, we talk about owning the customer. What, what we're really saying is wherever there's direct face-to-face -face interaction with a customer that matters, we want the retailer to own it. So in the case of delivery, for instance, if the trend continues to be contactless or unattended, well, then there isn't necessarily a direct face-to-face -face interaction, which means the strategy should shift to optimizing based on capabilities. And that's where the third-party logistic providers, again, people like Uber, DoorDash, and some others, can offer white-label services on behalf of the retailers. They're already doing that. Um, but it also does then mean reclaiming some greater degree of control over their ordering platforms. And this is a nuance. It is a difference with a distinction. You could be a first-party platform but not have control over, for instance, your search algorithms or your advertising algorithms. So these are important as you start to look at the customer experience and say, for instance, if a customer specifies a particular brand in a search, I won't name any, and what comes back is not uh, that specified brand, but rather featured products in advance of uh, the brand, we would argue that the retailer should be the one who determines whether that's uh, in effect what happens with their customers. We understand there may be some ad dollars that are at play there, but from a customer's perspective, we believe that if intent is specified like that, a seamless shopping uh, customer-centric retailer would absolutely adhere to the standards that if a brand is called, a brand is delivered. If they say, you know, a generic term like peanut butter, have at it, throw all the features and promotions at them, put the private label first, but the minute they put the brand in there, respect the brand, respect the customer, put it first. And customers and retailers need to have that ability to do that. They don't, unfortunately, today. Yeah, it's it's interesting. There seems to be this, um, and you may you may hear about this in your conversations. This lack of understanding of organic search. That really, at the end of the day, a vendor that influences the algorithms to their benefit, it is to the detriment not just of the of the retailer, but fundamentally to the consumer. And it's yeah. it, it's interesting interesting that you ra raise that. Are you seeing anything else in in, in your crystal ball orange clementine? Well, yeah. So I I think there <clears throat> is at least in some of the conversations yeah. we have a growing appreciation for the role of strategic pricing. Yeah. You know this notion of parity pricing. You really have to then actually ask, what do you mean by that? Um, because there's a lot of different layers to that. Someone may say, well, we want the same price on, uh, online as we offer in store. Then the question is, do you, are you saying if you have a first party platform, that's the case? Or are you also saying if you're also on a third party marketplace, you want that? We would argue that the latter you don't want. There are reasons why the retailer, if they want to own the customer connections, would be motivated to have a bifurcated pricing strategy online. I think I wrote a, a blog about this with Mercatus. But more importantly, you don't want to create disincentives for them to actually use your service. Because after all, if it's your customer, you want to own those connections. And if you're working with other parties, you want to make sure that those partnerships are in alignment with your strategy. The fundamental challenge is if you don't have a strategy, you don't know whether you have alignment or not. Yeah, absolutely. I got to say, 
you know, I always love having you on, on the show, David. Mark, any last questions for, for David you can think of? No, I was just going to ask what happened to the rest of the Clementines. <laughs> the Clem- just, just the, the this is, no, this is just a stress ball that they gave and they had a few oh, other okay. sundry items with it. I keep it in my drawer. I sometimes throw it at the, the wall, um, but it's more of a stress doll than anything. Yeah. So, you, Mark, you get it free if you wait for more than 30 minutes. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, I, I'd be out of there, man. Uh, no. <laughs> Doing donuts in the parking lot with the car. Just uh, like, where's my Well, I, you know, the funny story I had was uh, I was in another market doing all my market research for another retailer before COVID. And I forgot I used my pseudonym when I signed up. So when I pulled into the parking lot, they actually had the attendant come out and they asked, uh, what's the name of the order? And I told them my real name. They went in, sir, we don't have it. I said, and, and, and I was trying to be patient. And I'm like, you guys are really incompetent. And then, and then it was about five minutes in. And then they're like, sir, the only thing we have in there is something for, should I say my pseudonym? Yeah, yeah. It, it, it's John Wayne. I'm like, oh, oh, that's me. That's me. I said, I'm sorry. I, I must have forgot. So, you know, um, you know, it's like IT. It's only as good as a user. In this case, I, I, I fooled myself. So shame on me. That's awesome. So, <laughs> David, thank you so much for joining us. Listen, how do people uh, get a hold of you? Well, they could uh, reach me at my email, David dot bishop at brick means click they could always call me but you need to know that number so email me is the best way you could like me or i don't want to say like me i guess link with me connect with me whatever the right term is on linkedin um and that's about it um so reach out via email uh connect with me on linkedin and we'll go from there awesome that's great mark another great show i'm looking forward to the, yeah, to the next was, one yeah that was that was fantastic so hey, very mark. good on the transition Thank you. It's this is new for us, right? We're kind of experimenting, yeah. trying all these crazy things. Yeah. And and Mark, share share with our wonderful audience. How do they uh, get a hold of us? Please like and subscribe. Follow us on YouTube at Digital Grocer. Uh, follow us on Twitter. Uh, keep keep posted uh, on when we release new shows. Yeah, this way is just to subscribe to the channel. Yeah, and so so I got an interesting uh, question from uh, one of the senior managers at the Yotel in New York City. The Yotel's that really that that funky hotel that's not far from the Javits, yeah, yeah. you know. And they have these yep. on the Sundays. They have the brunch. It's open bar and everything. Yeah. Anyways, that's a, another story. Um, he asked, uh, so they, so he and his colleagues at the hotel have been listening to this show, and he's been asking. Really? Yeah. He asked me on LinkedIn, "How do you start a podcast like ours?" Because they're considering doing one for the hospitality slash hotel industry. Um, so, Alex, awesome. if, if you have any questions, just send them to Mark or I via, via LinkedIn, and we'll we'll talk in them. Yeah, on the happy show. happy to help. Happy to help and educate other people who can. Get their voice online. Absolutely. Absolutely. My, my thanks to the Duke. To the Duke. Ah, yes. To the Duke. That was a great show. That was a great show. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for tuning in. It's been amazing being with you uh, on your journeys of listening about uh, digital grocery. And don't forget to keep your, your eyes and ears open for episode nine, which I'm sure we'll be tackling another amazing schedule uh, topic. Peace out. <laughs>